the close of the chapter. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you for the presence of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord that's in this place today. We ask that you would continue to minister and lead as we study your word, which we believe is inspired and fallible, the very breath of God. We ask that you would edify us, that you would sharpen us, Lord. If there's any way in our lives where the enemies got us tangled up in sin or ensnared in confusion or defeat, Lord, we thank you for liberty and freedom today in Jesus' name as the word of the Lord goes forth. Lord, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We thank you, Lord, for that this morning. And Lord, I just yield myself to you today. Ask that you would use these words, use this time. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Well, this week I was reading a few, uh, a few separate voices. Um, but, but Piper, I was reading Piper talking about the way in which the modern church, the modern Western church, has really elevated pragmatism. Meaning that um, when you think about the Great Awakenings in our states, they were led by um, George Whitfield, who was a hot preacher, but a very um, theologically articulate man, had given himself to the word. When you think about Jonathan Edwards as a leader in the Awakenings, this, con- this continent has not released a greater thinker, um, period. Jonathan Edwards is the greatest thinker this continent has ever known, but yet is totally influential and in the middle of the awakening, the power of God, um, the movement of the Spirit. But somewhere along the way, we've gotten the idea that what, and for lack of better words, what sells in the West what, what really seems to gather people is pragmatism, meaning give me, just give me the steps. Just, just tell me how to live a better life. Just give me the steps. And in many ways, as a young guy who's went through some preaching courses and been around, in many ways, that's what I was taught. Just, just give people steps. They just want to know how to better lead their family. And if you'll, if you'll be very pragmatic, um, you'll draw a crowd. And there's very much a need for pragmatism. There is a healthy thing when we sit before the Bible, we study a passage of Scripture, and then we say, Lord, what does this passage of Scripture mean to my life? How does this passage of Scripture uh, impact the way I live? That's a part of studying Scripture. That's a part of the application process. It's very necessary. But somewhere along the way, we've thrown away any kind of thinking at all. We've been told, I was taught, people don't want theology. People don't want doctrine. People don't care about your theology. And that's a, that's a dangerous, dangerous posture. Not, not only dangerous, but stupid. <laughs> Literally stupid and figuratively. Both, both ways. There are moments in your life where you will have to answer the big questions. Where pragmatism alone doesn't stand. Where you get the bad diagnosis. Right? And, and all the questions come falling down upon you. What is life? What does your life really matter? What have you done with your life? Or the, you know, your life savings in a day goes away. Right? Like they're just whatever. The economy collapses. And, and you're faced with these big questions like, where, how, where, what kind of legacy are you really leaving? What is your life for? 
you're ridiculed and shamed for your beliefs. Your workplace mocks you. And, and they're the enemy. There's something very, like, very, you want to talk about pragmatism. Let's talk about pragmatism here. What's practical is to know the enemy of your soul, to understand his strategies and his ways. And, and when uh, Peter says he's like a roaring lion looking for whom he should devour, you have an enemy who's, who's out to get you. And, and it, it is practical, pragmatic to understand that. Um, the enemy is the, is the ultimate naysayer, accuser, and he's the ultimate interrogator. So there are moments in your life where it feels like everything's falling apart, and then the enemy comes with questions. Why will you, why keep going? You've served the Lord for 30 years and he allowed this to happen to you now? Why not just quit? Why not just lay down? And so many saints live in defeat and discouragement because they don't have answers when the enemy comes with his questions. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism opens with this question. What is the chief end of man? That's an old way of saying, what is man's purpose? Why are we here or alive? And the answer to the question was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's a fundamental question. Why do I exist? And the saints of old would say, we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called... um, the end of which God created the world. The end of which God created the world. In our language, we would say the, the, the why God created. And he argued that God's intention from, from Gethsemane to the New Jerusalem, that God's intention was for his glory to be seen and known by creation and enjoyed. That we are to, uh, we, we exist to, to encounter his glory, to enjoy it, And to glorify. The end of creation, Edward says, the end of creation is that creation might glorify God. Then he says, now what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory that he had displayed? Now, now we've slid into thinking. And as modern Western Christians, again, we don't like to think. And and I often say that for all of the Christian devotionals we have on the bookshelf these, these days, if you would just throw them all away and read one paragraph of Jonathan Edwards a day, you would be in really good shape. It would take you 45 minutes to understand what he's saying um, because he's thinking so deep. Um, but, but he's saying here that, agreeing with the catechism, that, that God from eternity past, he, he created not because he was needy, right? God didn't need us. But he created out of the overflow of the goodness of God, the intimacy that the triune God had from eternity past. He created out of the overflow of his own goodness to express the glory of God. Now, glory is the sum of all of his attributes. It's the weightiness, the essence of who he is. And so he created creation so that creation might see his glory, the beauty, the majesty, the weightiness of who he is. And in seeing his glory, creation would be satisfied, would be fully satisfied. 
And so this is where you start to get in the ideas of Augustine saying, like, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. Like, there is no satisfaction in life. There is no real existence. There is no life and life abundantly without seeing, knowing, tasting God's glory. Now, when you start talking about Jonathan Edwards, who was kind of, he's called the last Puritan. And we think of him as, he was a Calvinistic expositor of Scripture. um, But he was not a man who believed that the faith was only intellectual. He believed that right doctrine should lead you to right experience. And so that's birthing the awakening. And what Jonathan Edwards would say was um, that, that it's not enough to simply confess that God is glorious. We've gotten way used to that in the West. You know the doctrinal statements and you can confess God is glorious. But Jonathan Edwards said the demons know that God is glorious. The intention of God from creation was not that you could go about your life and regurgitate the theological confession that God is glorious. The intention was that you would taste and see the glory of God. The intention was that you would know God. And think, think of, again, the Hebraic idea of knowledge, right? Adam knew Eve. And so when the, when the prophet said, um, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. He's talking about God's intention, the knowledge of the glory of God, and not just being a, an intellectual concept, but an intimate understanding of God's nature. Tasting it, seeing it. Think of all the expressions of Scripture, like all of your senses being caught up in the glory of God. And then, then Edwards wants you to know, and, and there's so many modern thinkers, um, John Piper and Sam Storms, people who really love Edwards and then are, then are working to explain Edwards to us. Um, Edwards wanted us to know that the idea that God created us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever, that those ideas are not broken. But the idea is, and, and Piper will say this all the time, the idea is that that God is most, this is Piper's words now, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Meaning, the more I see Him and taste Him and know Him, the more my heart responds with celebration for His glory. And so as I taste Him, see Him, know Him, I'm responding with a greater and a deeper level of praise and worship, with a greater, deeper level of enjoying and rejoicing in God's glory. Now, um, when you start thinking, I'm sorry, I'm nerding out today. Just forgive me. I don't have, I had too much coffee, I guess. Um, When we start thinking about, I'm thinking of Jonathan Edwards' book now on the religious affections. I'm shifting books on you. Um, When Edwards talks about um, the way in which the saints in heaven, they're, they're rejoicing. Why is it that we, are, we, we long for heaven where we'll be totally satisfied? Why are the saints in heaven more satisfied than us today? Because they have a fuller tasting, seeing, knowing of Jesus, right? They're in his very presence. They, they see, they hear his voice. They are fully satisfied in Christ today. And their worship is fuller, right? I, we like to try to compete with heaven, but we know the angels sing holy, holy, holy 24-7. And I don't know about you, but I need a nap every now and then. Okay? And so we can't compete with the glory of heaven. 
the common theme here is they are more satisfied. Their worship is fuller and hotter because they have a greater knowing of God's glory. Greater revelation, knowing of God's glory. So then when you think, just try to follow my train of thought here. When you think, um, what's wrong with America today? We're taught, again, in the church to be very pragmatic. We say pornography. If what's wrong with the church today is pornography, then we should address pornography, and we should. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, we should talk more about pornography. We should talk about the ways to, to conquer pornography. Um, and all of that is good. But ultimately, what empowers a man or woman to conquer pornography is the revelation, the intimate knowing of God's glory in Christ Jesus that gives them victory over sin. So, in other words, abortion, right? I don't like it. I think it's evil. Um, we can continually try to legislate it to death. And we should actually try to legislate it to death. But at the end of the day, legislating the thing to death doesn't fix the fact that people in our nation do not have a thankfulness for the glory of God in creation. It doesn't fix the fact that children are trash in our nation. Um, and so this is where you start to realize, um, Pastor Doug Wilson talked about this uh, last couple weeks, that, that worship, in his words, worship is upstream from culture. So you can attack culture, tell culture what culture is doing wrong, but we have a heart problem. The, the, the fruit of our negative culture actually begins with our weak and frail worship. Okay? And so, we, again, legislate abortion, we should, we really should try to legislate the thing to death. Um, but at the end of the day, what we should be trying even more so is to get back to the place where our worship is hot and full and the glory of God is known in our nation. And so for us as a church, when we talk about our mission and what we're trying to do, we talk a lot about God's glory. Our kind of tagline is we exist for his glory. So when the diagnosis comes, right, cancer, you got two years, two months, pick the time to live. And the enemy starts to say, what do you even live for? Why keep going to church? Why are you still getting up to pray? Has prayer really helped you? When the questions start to come, then I have an answer. And the answer is, I exist for the glory of God. To know his glory, to celebrate and rejoice in his glory, and to see him glorified in the nations. And here we can slide into Paul's language now. Think of Paul saying to the Philippians, I don't really know if I'm going to die or not. I don't even know if I want to die or not. But for me, to live is Christ, meaning if I continue to live, all of my living will be for Christ. Will be being satisfied in him and proclaiming his beauty to the nations. If I continue to live, I will live fully absorbed in the glory of God. And if I die, to die is gain. That will be to then transition into the posture of the saints being fully satisfied by God's glory day in and day out. And we can't say that. We can't say that until we start thinking through some of these issues. And so um, we like to use the phrase, uh, where the mubber, where the, where the mubber, mubber's not a word, okay? 
if it is some kind of slang that I don't know about, forgive me. Um, where the rubber meets the road, right? That's what I was trying to say. The answers that you bring to the questions of hell in your hour of trial, that's what conviction is. There's conviction. Where the rubber meets the road, there's conviction. And, and so when you start to think about many people confess Christ when it's popular, many people confess Christ when it's easy, when there are advantages to being in a church, or, um, but, but when persecution comes, that's where the rubber meets the road, and when you'll have to have answers to the questions. Why don't you just quit? Why don't you just stop? And what we lack in America is conviction. There is both a thinking problem. We haven't thought through what we're saying. There's a heart problem. We haven't in our, in our hearts fully known the glory of God. Right? We haven't, we haven't laid on the altar and, and fasted and prayed and said with Moses, show me your face. Thinking about, um, y'all forgive me, I promise I won't do this again. Um, I'm thinking about Jonathan Edwards in another place of his life saying that um, he, was, he, was, he was in the habit of in the afternoon sometimes going on a walk and praying. And he was on a walk praying. Again, now this is a, a, a very, Jonathan Edwards was uh, chosen to be the president of Princeton. This is a smart dude. And he's on his afternoon walk and he said that he met, as he walked, he saw the glorified Jesus. Jesus met with him there. And he saw Jesus in a glorified state. For something, he said, it felt like something like an hour. And he just stood there and wept and wept and wept at the presence of Jesus. Um, and, and so, for him, there has to be a, a consistency, a, a coherence to our, our, what we believe, what we experience of God's glory. And then, when the enemy comes, we have to have confession like, I will live for Christ through hell or high water. And, and that confession is only real when it's tried. That confession only really means something when fire gets turned on. This is where James starts talking about not to not, to, to not um, despise your trials, the fiery trials, but to rejoice at the testing. I think that our nation is about to experience a testing. And maybe we already are experiencing a testing of, our, of what we actually believe. What we actually believe. And I think it's going to be necessary in the coming days as we attempt to see God's glory permeate this region. It's going to be necessary to have answers to the nagging questions of hell. You guys with me so far? Okay, let me read to you our passage of scripture today. And what we're reading, I'll give you a little context in case you're just jumping in with us. What we're reading today is... Um, from Ezra, Ezra's recording to us the first wave of exiles who have left Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, and they've been commissioned to rebuild Solomon's temple. Now, the last several weeks we've studied this and talked about it, but kind of the Reader's Digest here is that um, Zerubbabel, who's kind of the governor, and the, Joshua is the high priest, they have led the people to lay the foundation. They laid the foundation of the new temple. It was obvious in that moment that they didn't have the resources or the, the, the supplies, the energy, the gifting to rebuild Solomon's temple. Because Solomon, remember, was the richest king of the earth, right? Solomon had everything Solomon wanted. Um, so Solomon's temple was grand. 
they've been commissioned to rebuild Solomon's temple. They lay the foundation, and it's very clear that they're not, this isn't going to be Solomon's temple. It's not going to be that glorious. Um, But they continue to keep working. But as they keep working, they have enemies who rise up against them. This is this is both this is spiritual warfare manifesting in the natural. They have men who are trying to confuse the project. They have men who are trying to intimidate them. And so the people who have been commissioned to leave Babylon and rebuild Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, they become so discouraged and afraid of their enemies that they just quit. So for over 10 years, no one worked on God's temple. Now remember, we read from the beginning of Ezra chapter 5 last week what God did after over 10 years of no building, of total, total just laying down to discouragement and fear, was God brought two prophets. He brought the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. And the prophet Haggai and Zechariah started to prophesy to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the high priest. And you remember in, in, in Haggai chapter 1, Haggai the prophet says to the people in Jerusalem, essentially he says, why are you working on your own houses? You're, you're, you're sowing crops in your own fields. You're trying to build your own lives. But God's temple is not built. You'll build your own house, but you won't build God's temple. And God's looking for a place for his glory to dwell. And so he essentially says, you're not blessed in your work because you haven't given yourself to fulfill your call to build God's temple. And so the prophets start to just ream the leadership and essentially to say, get your ba- butts back up and build. Get back on your feet. You've laid down. You quit. Get back to building. Build, 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 the prophets say. And so the scripture told us in the beginning of Ezra chapter 5 that, that the, the men got up and they began to build again. They had the prophets with them, encouraging them, speaking the word of the Lord to them. And for a matter of time, they continued to build. Then the scripture says that as they continued to build, inspectors came. This is to, to modernize this idea. Essentially, they came looking for a building permit. Okay? And um, they began to ask questions. Who are you? Why are you building? What are you doing? The inspectors from Persia. The, um, the, the, the people respond. They have this moment of fear. Right? Who are you? Why are you building? What are you doing? And they have this moment where they could collapse again. And say, there's no way Persia's going to let us keep building. We hear everything we just did for the last 15 years is going to be thrown in the trash. Why don't we just lay down? Just quit now. You might as well just quit now. You know how pessimism flourishes like teenage acne. Like it just keeps coming. Um, do people use that analogy? No, no, just just me. And so they have this moment where they could just quit. But the scripture says they responded to the inspectors and they kept building because the prophets were there encouraging them. Now, what we're going to read today, remember that Ezra is a scribe. He's a historian. Ezra likes documentation. Okay, we're going to find that as we study Ezra. He's the greatest scribe in all of, all of Scripture, definitely all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture. Ezra is going to give us, in Ezra chapter 5, when we start our reading, he's going to give us the letter that was sent from the inspectors to Darius, who is now the king of the Persian Empire. So today we're going to read the letter from the inspectors to Darius, And in the letter, we're going to find, how did the people answer the nagging questions? Who are you? Why are you building? We're going to look at the response of the Jews today. All right, let's start reading in in chapter 5, verse 6. This is a copy 
of the letter that Tassanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. Again, Ezra likes documentation. This is a copy of that letter. They sent him a report in which was, was written as follows. This is what they wrote. To Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of the leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago which a great king of Israel built and finished. That would be Solomon. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God shall be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now, it has been in, in building and is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be, be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Now again, these inspectors from the text seem rather honest. They... Um, I think that the, the people, the Jews, are going to experience warfare and fear, but these inspectors seem to just be straight. They're just straight trying to ask, who gave you authority? What decree? We're just trying to do our job. And so they send this letter to Darius, who is now reigning over Persia. So it's no longer Cyrus, it's Darius. And they essentially say, Darius, this is what happened. Let us know what you want us to do. Now, from here... It's important that we remember the prophecy of Isaiah. Again, Isaiah is hundreds of years before the birth of Cyrus, but before hundreds of years before Cyrus was born, in Isaiah 44, 28, Isaiah prophesied this, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And so... God prophesied hundreds of years before the temple was even destroyed that it would be destroyed and that he had appointed a man named Cyrus to rise up in leadership in Persia and to release the Jews from Babylon to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. So Cyrus, the Persian king, overthrows Babylon, releases a decree according to Isaiah's prophecy. And, and this far in our account, we're reading of those people who were initially released and who began to work under the decree of Cyrus. Now again, what we've read is that they paused and they quit and they got discouraged for so long that Cyrus is no longer king. There's been a transition in government. 
and now we're under the, the, the leadership of Darius. And so they're not able to say to the, to the inspectors, look, Cyrus told us to do this. Because it's been such a long period of time that that decree of Cyrus is unknown. So much so that the inspectors are having to say to Darius, search Babylon, search the records to see if Cyrus ever said this. And so they're stuck in this moment of, are we going to be shut down again? I won't go through all the details, but the inspectors report to Darius the scenario and record for us the elders' response. So the questions were, who are you? Who gave you a decree or permission to build this? Who are your leaders? Remember they asked that? Who are, who's overseeing this project? And they record for us in verse 9 through 10 the response to the nagging questions. The response from the Jews when it feels like everything you're doing is being undermined. Verse 9 through 10. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write them down, the names of their leaders. The response here is, is beautiful. And we're going to take just a few moments here to work through the response today. The first thing they say is, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Who are you? Now, I ask you that. Who are you? And you're going to give me your name and maybe where you're from. Um, right? Like, that's the logical answer. But the response here is calculated. And conviction is always calculated. It's always thought through. So the calculated response is, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Servants of the God of heaven and earth. We belong to Yahweh, the Lord of all. So in this confession, hear me, we're going to think slowly and carefully for a minute. In this confession, we find layers of theological truth. We belong to the Lord of heaven and earth. What are they saying? We belong to the one who is the sovereign, supreme God over all things. We understand in Babylon you worship Baal. We understand in Babylon you go after um, all kinds of different gods, a plethora of... We understand your polytheism. We understand your cults. We get all of that. Who are we? We worship the God who is the God above all gods. Who are we? We are sons of the sovereign one of, of the heavens. So everything that happens in the spiritual realm, he's king over that and of the earth. Everything you do and your kings do and your leadership does, he's king over that too. We belong to the one who is supremely sovereign above all things. There's theological conviction here. And then, and then think this. They could have responded, we are those Jews who God threw off. We're the Jews who remember the ones that you guys took into slavery to Babylon. Yeah, that was us. We're, we're the ones you conquered our city and you burned everything down and then we served you for 70 years but then Cyrus let us go. Do you remember you burned my, my ancestors' land? You destroyed our temple? Yeah, we're, we are those captives. 
They could have responded, God spit us out of his mouth. We're the rejected ones. We're the ones who used to belong to him, but now he's walked away from. But no, there's theological conviction here when they say, we are the sons of the God who is above all things in the heavens and on the earth. And, and they're saying, our God is merciful. Our God is faithful. Our God's steadfast love endures towards us forever. God made a covenant with Abraham that should last throughout generations. What God started with Abraham, he'll finish. They're saying that we still belong to him. And so many times you'll find yourself in a season where you've struggled with frustration. Maybe you got tangled up in sin. Maybe bitterness got you. And the enemy will say, who are you? And you'll be tempted to say, oh, I'm the bitter one. I'm the prodigal. Or I'm, I'm, I'm the betrayer. I'm the one who rebelled. I'm the one who God's rejected. But if we would get consistent with our theology and we would understand that the steadfast love of God does endure forever, we would understand adoption and the fact that we've been grafted into the family of God. And there we begin to, 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 to remember that not height or depth or width or breadth could ever separate me from the love of God. Jesus says, no one will pluck you from my hand. And so then my response to hell, when hell says, who are you? My response is, I am a son of the sovereign one, the one who is over you. I am a son of the one who triumphs over hell. Come on, you start to say, I'm a daughter of the one who conquers all things. And so in this moment of of questioning, they first rise up with identity. And your identity, we talk so much about identity in the church today, it's a bit of a buzzword. Your identity must be founded upon theological truth. You don't know who you are until you start to really grasp who he is. And you, you don't know who he is from pop culture. You know who he is from studying the word of God, from being good Bereans, from being people of the word. Who are you? That's a soul searcher. We're the sons and daughters of the king of heaven and of earth. What are you doing? They're asked. What are you building? They say, we're rebuilding the house that a great king built. So obviously they're talking about Solomon. We're rebuilding the temple that Solomon built. Now remember again, it's really important to remember that the second temple was was a bit lackluster. Okay, it, it wasn't. It just wasn't Solomon's temple. Um, so they could say, we are the ones rebuilding a temple here where Solomon's temple used to be. We know it's not like quite like what Solomon built, but it's in the same spot, right? But, but rather they say, we are rebuilding the house that Solomon built. Now their naysayers would say that ain't it. But, but notice, I want you to notice this from the introduction in verse 8. This is what the inspectors said. Now, again, it seems very likely that these inspectors were, were really kind of what we would think of when we think of building inspectors. They were people who went around to construction sites, to other sites, to, to make sure things were being handled properly. And so they knew construction. I say, say they knew construction. And listen to what they say in verse 8. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. 
diligently and prospers in their hands. So their naysayers are saying, what you're building is small and meaningless. It's not beautiful. The architecture is not Solomon's architecture. And, but they just keep working, according to the inspectors, diligently. And their work is prospering. So, so watch. There's a sense in, in the life of every believer where the enemy will say, everything you do is insignificant. You're praying for your kids as if that's going to change something. You go to work and you work hard with integrity. Everyone else at work just sits on their phone. What do you keep working? What do you? Nothing you do matters. But the people of God have to rise up and say, no. I am a son or a daughter of the Almighty. I'm an ambassador for his kingdom. I'm a minister of reconciliation. Everything I do, I, all of my work, I work unto the glory of God. And, and when, when hell says you're insignificant, and when hell says what you're doing doesn't matter, and when hell says nobody likes you anyway, you're not a good, you're not a good evangelist, you're not a good disciple maker, you're not important. The biblical response is to keep working diligently. Why do they keep working diligently? They're not working diligently because the work looks as beautiful, as grand as they would like it to look. They're working diligently because God commissioned them to do so. Right? And so, so many times God called you to something, right? He called you to go work at this place and you think, God's going to use me, I'm going to start a Bible study. And then you get the Bible study going and only two people show up. And you go, I'm building God, but this is not Solomon's temple. But these, these understand that, that, that what matters is faithfulness to the decree of God. Faithfulness to the call of God. And, and, and here, I think we remember, no matter what it looks like, from conviction, diligence should rise up. Third, I'm getting close sometimes. Let me wind this thing down. Third, our fathers, they say, say, who are you? What are you doing? What are you building? They say, our fathers sinned and rebelled against God, and God gave us to Babylon. Here, they're actually partnering with the narrative of the prophets and of Scripture. Because culturally speaking, anytime a region was conquered, um, the gods of the conquerors were viewed as the champions. So, right, the, the Babylonian gods are viewed as conquering the God of Israel. And that's why they took the vessels from the temple and put them in the temples in Babylon as tokens of their victory. And so they could say... And, it, and hell would want them to say, don't you remember when your gods defeated our God and you, t- you took all of our stuff? But rather they say, no, our God was not conquered. Your Babylonian gods did not overcome Yahweh. We rebelled. And our God is holy and just. And when we sinned against him, he removed his hand of protection from us. And so, even here, there's sometimes a an honest and gloomy side of conviction, right? To honestly confess. I'll say it this way. It's easy to look at our culture and to go, hell won. There's there's pornography everywhere. I, I can't turn on the TV without profanity being thrown at me. And do you know what our kids are being taught in school? 
and do you understand the demonic influence in the realm of, of business and music and hell one? Or you can go, no, Satan hasn't triumphed for a day. We rebelled. Right? Those are two very different narratives. Like this country once had a move of God and the preaching of the word and faithful churches to the scripture, but somewhere along the way, we got stale and lethargic and apathetic and we watched our nation slide away. God wasn't conquered. Hell didn't win. The last thing they say is, don't you remember that that Cyrus decreed that we should come back. But what they really said was, God raised up Cyrus, who decreed that we should return. So they don't say, well, look, we're working because Cyrus said we could. They say, our God decreed that Cyrus would decree that we could begin working again. There is a higher decree so, so in other words, they're, they're essentially saying, Darius can decree things, but even Darius is under the great decree of our God. And we are working because God decreed that Cyrus would decree, not because Cyrus said so. And that's actually wildly important. You know, the things we do when, we, when we're, we're doing um, evangelism or we're trying to... to, to see the kingdom come in this region. We're not just doing what some book told us to do, or we're not just doing what what an elder told us to do, or we're not just doing what we think is right. We are aligning ourselves with the decree of the highest king of heaven and earth. And the king decreed that we should go to the nations and make disciples and preach the gospel and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The, The king decreed that we should be ambassadors of Christ. The king decreed that we should preach the gospel. And so when hell says, who gave you permission? Well, like the king of all kings, the highest one. And in a sense, they are saying too, you can go back and talk to Darius. That's good. Go talk with Darius. But, but God told Cyrus, God decreed that Cyrus would decree. God will decree that Darius should decree. We're not concerned with Darius having the authority to overthrow our work. And so, governments rise against churches in all kinds of nations in the earth today. But, but governments can't over-decree Jesus' decree when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, things again, culturally get weird. Or, or Christianity continues to look... Um, to be distasteful in our country. And maybe there are government tightening down on the church. We've got to remember that the government can't out-decree the decree. And, and the church will be built. And because Christ Jesus said, he will build it. And, it, and it's not my church, it's not your church. He said, it's, he said I will build my church. It's Jesus' church. And when the king of heaven and earth says, I will have a church... He's going to have it. And so when we, as a people, say, all right, whether you like it or not, we live in the low country, okay? This is where God planted us. 
And the decree of heaven is that Christ Jesus is going to have a church here in this region. And that Christ Jesus will have a bride that loves him with an undefiled love. Then when we start getting into things, you're trying to lead a Bible study at your work and no one comes. Or we're, we're trying to plant and, and, and to see more people come to know Jesus in Bluffton. But we hit hiccups and hardships and people start naysaying. And, and then we start going, is anything we do even effective? Maybe we should just quit. You have to rise up with conviction. And the conviction is there is a decree. I don't really care whether or not we think what we're doing is effective. We just care that we're in line with the words of our king. Because we're servants of Jesus. And he's beautiful and wonderful. Worship team, come for me. I'll get ready to wrap up. Now, um, as they come, I don't want to over-contextualize here. There's, you can over-contextualize scriptures. But, but I would say, this country once had some moves of God, man. And uh, once knew the glory of God on several occasions. Awakening swept but over decades now, we have experienced the decline in the church, numerically. I think we probably can say we've experienced a great decline in conviction. I think if we were just speaking with a real broad brush, that our worship has grown tired. And in this hour, it would be really easy to hear people say, and people say it to me, People say this to me. Churches are not growing in America. Do not, do not try to do, don't, don't try to grow the church in Bluffton. Don't, don't, don't build anything. Don't put your money in it. It's not working anymore. You, you need to try something different. And, or people say, you're small you're insignificant. I get you guys. People are always like, you're very handsome. I get that all the time, okay? Um, um, that's not true. But, but what people say is you're young. You're young. Like, obviously. Thank you. Yeah. And, and forgive me, elders in the room. They're old. So our elders are old. So we're balancing out. Mr. Jerry, forgive me back there. Um, we got a good balance going. But, but, the, but the word is always, stop trying, right? Stop, quit, stop trying. You're never going to see the gospel penetrate these schools. Stop praying. Stop. Lay down. And we have to, again, this is, this is where conviction actually becomes conviction and not ideology. When we respond back and say, no, man, I'm a son or daughter of the living God. He has called me, ordained me, put his hand on my life. He's sovereign over heaven and hell and everything on the earth. Nothing you can do could ever hinder his decree over my life. And so with all of that said, I'm going to be diligent. I'm just going to keep working. And you can look at what I'm building and say, that is not as glorious as the church used to be. And I would say, I don't really care, right? I'm being diligent to what God has called me to today. I'm a son or daughter of the king. I have known his glory in the secret place. 
and his glory has satisfied the deepest desires of my heart, I belong to him all my life, all my life. So if you'd stand to your feet.